0: Hi and welcome to Figure of Speech, a new program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and fiction writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today we welcome on Dr. Mahira Muzagar, who is the Provost and Senior Vice President at University of New Orleans as well as a fiction writer. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Mahira Muzagar. I'm the Provost and Senior Vice President at the University of New Orleans. I'm an engineer by training but for the past 20 years, I've been working on national security for the Defense Department. I was born in Iran, and all my life I wanted to be a writer. But being Iranian, uh, being the old world person, uh, the idea was that uh, I will either be an engineer or a mathematician or a doctor. At the end, end up being a mathematician-engineer. But uh, the love of writing and reading never left me. And I've been writing for myself since high school, but I never showed it to anybody until recently when I showed it to my wife and my girls. And given they loved me, they thought it was great. Uh, Whether it was or not, I don't know. But that gave me some encouragement to show it to others. And finally, after two years of shopping around, I was able to publish my first book called The Dark Sunny Afternoon. Uh, and it 's a psychological drama about a sniper from Vietnam who comes home and he has to deal with all the issues that he had to dealt with before. A year later, I wrote a book uh, called Pisgah Road, and it's about a man who goes back to London in search of his his high school love. And he's happened to also be a spy. And in two days in London, he has to recover and reconnect with his love, but also is trying to serve his country. And there's a conflict in there. And he's trying to come up with a way to save his love, at the same time do what his duties to the country is. Today, I'd like to read you a short story that I wrote a few years ago. And it's about, in a sense, it's about modern world and about secrets that we hold and how it affects us. It's called Tell Me More, and it came out in an anthology of short stories uh, a couple of years ago. So here it is. Tell Me More. Joseph. Immediate. Knowledge. Oblivion. Misery. Sagacious. Empathy. Joseph. Amani Parker continued his steady drone of seemingly random words. As I sat in the kitchen table, dutifully writing each one down in a yellow legal path. I didn't know how to respond to him, so I continued carefully, copying every single word that crawled out of his mouth, hoping to find a pattern in Amani's deliberate, brawling madness. The only word that had been repeated more than once is his litany of abstruseness, was Joseph. He had mentioned it earlier in his slow rant, and then twice now. The name had stuck in my mind because of a change in his cadence, as he even more carefully pronounced the name of the first time. I had underlined the word the first time, and now he said it twice more, though this time he announced it with the same monotone, steady voice that occupied the kitchen for the past two hours. Ordinary, the feat of listing two hours of worth of names and places with only one repetition would have been amazing enough to invoke a nice conversation, but today was turning into anything but ordinary. It didn't start this way. There were no signs that the day would be anything but predictable. I would expect, at least hope, for some type of permission when one's life was about to change forever. And perhaps if I were more pious, as my mother puts it, a better person, I would have received a sign from a deity. But as it were, my day started out like any other day. I woke up early. Fully prepared to start my normal life of going to work, then coming home to get ready for my date. Third date with the same person. Going out for a nice dinner and then coming home alone, or not, depending on how the night went, and then have a leisurely weekend. Definitely alone, no matter what. I should have put calling my mother on the list of things for the weekend. Perhaps that would have been brought some more reprieve from the hell that I would enter by the end of the day. I started with a simple phone call. I was about to put my makeup when the phone rang. Don't answer, I told myself, but I never listened. Not that would have mattered this time. I picked up the phone. Can you come over? What, now? I heard Dahlia, smart, take a deep breath on the other side of the line, and I knew she was trying very hard to check herself. She never really liked me, and calling me so early in the morning to ask for a favor meant she felt desperate. Amani needs you, replied Dahlia in a managed voice. Is everything okay? No, of course not. Would I have called you if everything was fine, Jackie? She was right. She wouldn't have if she called some, and she would have called someone else. What's wrong, Dahlia? Is Amani ill? I wasn't trying to be nonchalant about it, but Dahlia had made it clear from the minute she, had, she and Amani were married that I wasn't welcome in their house, and more pointedly, in their life. Their life. They had become a singular organism that seems to have no more room for me. Dahlia would tolerate my presence when it was absolutely necessary, but other than my long-time close friendship with Amani had to be curtailed and to accommodate Dahlia's large presence. Dahlia and Amani had known each other for, for, for just five years. I've only been married for three I've been Imani's friend for almost 20 years, since our first day in college. I wasn't really a threat to Dahlia, as there was nothing one could describe as romantic between us anymore. Dahlia and I would keep cordial relationship if Imani had not, in one of his one-should-never-have-any-secrets moment divulge our love affair that ended almost a decade earlier before asking for Dahlia's hand in marriage. This imprudent confession effectively ended any possibility of friendship between Dahlia and me. The worst part about the whole thing, if there is less than worse in any part of it, was the way he did it. He did it right in front of me and without any warning. So one minute, I'm chatting with Dahlia, trying to be nice to her. And the next minute, Amani's one knee, his arm outstretched, blurting about honesty in relationships and his everlasting love for her saying it was awkward for the two women would be putting it very mildly. It was horrific. Imagine this. I was standing next to their hands, handmade kitchen table that Dahlia had finished a week earlier. The same kitchen table that I'm sitting at now while taking pages and pages of notes, pretending to admire her workmanship and she describing at ad nauseum every single detail of chiseling and the arts of tongue and groove when my best friend dropped to his knees and Tells her everything about us, I mean everything, and within a minute, the us that was private and sacred become public and ugly and decimated. The image and feel of the moment as Dahlia and I are trying to comprehend Amani's confession of love has stayed solidly with me. My mouth froze open in mid sentence, as was Amani's impervious grin, as was Dahlia's look of horror. Amani. Oblivious to the terror he had caused, kept on grinning and then following the first act with a coup de grace pulling out a beautiful ring from his pocket. He wanted to profess his love in front of me because he thought of me as a family, but Dahlia only saw years of conspiracy. In the end, they were married, but I was out. Dahlia had never contacted me for anything, so she called me early in the morning meant she hadn't managed to solve whatever problem existed in her perfect world. I heard Dahlia take a deep breath on deep breath, the other side of a line. Amani has gone mad. He doesn't listen to me. He's been ranting for days and won't eat or sleep. But I still couldn't take her seriously. Are you sure? F you, Jackie, was her calm but rather venomous reply before hanging up on me. So it was real. I called her back, but she didn't respond. So she called again and then I ca- called again. I told myself one more time and then no more, but unfortunately she answered on a third try. He had locked himself in the bedroom and says he doesn't want to see you. Ha! Huh. He overheard me talking to you. Do you still want me to come? Yes. Please. I'll be there in 30 minutes. I replied, hung up and without waiting for her response. I could see Dahlia walking nervously in front of her house, like a caged animal, as I turned the corner. She hadn't seen me, absorbed in her thoughts. She looked desperate, and I thought this was an indication that her life was out of control. I was wrong, of course. Life itself was out of control. I admit Dahlia is beautiful, smart, and talented. She has a powerful job and makes ten times as much as I make. She's perfect. But I'm just a regular person with a regular job and a regular look. So again, I admit, it gave me a sense of satisfaction knowing that in Amani's hour of need, I was needed by Dahlia to rescue him. Of course, I was wrong here too. Amani was beyond help, and neither I nor anyone else could have helped him. Though at the time, I was oblivious as everyone else. Dahlia was still looking away at a distance and was startled with my old car, made a screeching sound and it came to a halt in her driveway. I turned off the engine and stepped outside as she watched my movement without blinking. She gave a timid smile, waiting for me to go to her. How is he? I asked as soon as I came close enough. Same, she replied, but still didn't move, expecting me to say something else, but when I didn't, she added, Serious Jackie he's gone mad. I'm sure he's fine. I assured her with a certainty that wasn't justified. You don't get it. He's not fine. Do you think I've called you if he was fine? I'm sorry, Dahlia. I'm just trying to be helpful. I know you want to be positive, Jackie, but he's in bad shape. She offered, and for the first time, there was some warmth in her voice, like the way she was when we met for the first time before she thought of me as a fraudulent woman who had slept with her man. Dahlia took a step forward, and for a second I thought she was going to hug me, or perhaps she was, by the last moment she stepped back and opened the front door for me. I walked in the house expecting to see chaos, remnant of a lunatic annihilating any sign of order, but the hallway was as usual spotless with polished hardwood floors and fresh-cut flowers on the other side of a table, I could see the kitchen from where I was standing as the sun shone brightly, putting Dahlia's table under a spotlight. I walked up the stairs, followed by Dahlia, and we stood by the bedroom door. I knocked gently. Amani, it's Jackie. There was no response. Amani. Still nothing. I'd expected him to open the door as soon as he heard my voice. I thought no matter what ailed him, No matter how bad he was, my voice at least soothed him enough to respond. I knocked again. Come on, Amani, open the door now. No. I heard a thin voice from the other side of the door. Feeling emboldened, I urged him on. Come on, sweetheart, open the door. I felt the icy cold stare of Dahlia on my back. I knew I should not have used the term of endearment, but it was too late now. I know. Amani called out. What do you know? He knows he knows, cried out Dahlia. That's all he says. She walked closest, knocked on the door hard. What is it? Tell me or tell Jackie. Tell someone, please. I know, but I can't moaned Amani with a voice filled with such frustration and pain that both Dahlia and I took an involuntary step back. You can't tell us anything. We're both here for you, darling, offered Dahlia generously. I know. We knocked a few more times, but there was no response. Darling, Dahlia said warmly, I made some orange muffins, the kind you like. Please let me bring you some. You don't have to talk, but at least let us give you something to eat. She then looked at me. He hasn't eaten for days, and you know how much she loves, he loves my orange muffins. She said the words in a wistful voice, as if she could believe he wouldn't open a door for her muffins. I shared her pain, and despite myself, I couldn't disagree with her. Dali is an amazing cook. Her muffins were not mere orange-flavored baked goods. They were, to use a cliché, a symphony of crystallized ginger and subtle essence of orange. Despite Imani's predicament and to my shame, I wanted to walk down to the kitchen and grab a muffin, whatever she would, whether she would convince Imani or not. I looked at Dahlia, and Dahlia looked at me, and then we both stared at the door, hoping the offer of the muffins would miraculously open it. It didn't work, and we both stood there in silence for a long time. And I re- And I really wanted to have one of those muffins. I have to go. What? I'm sorry, Jackie, but I have a big meeting today. I'm already late. I can't really miss it. Not today. Why, of course. Dahlia is an investment banker. She manages millions, if not billions. She's a superb carpenter. She can make little birds from scrap metals. Who am I? But a simple second assistant book cover designer. But I love my job. If it pays nothing... And I can only afford a small one-bedroom apartment on the edge of San Francisco so I can pretend I'm living in the city that I can never afford. And I have an understanding supporting boss. So of course Dahlia should go and I should stay. Okay, you go ahead and stay here. Are you sure? Thank you. No problem. No, I mean it. Thank you. I'll be back in a few hours. So she puts on her high heels to match her powerful outfit and leaves. I know she wouldn't be back until late in the evening, so I sink to the floor and lean on the door that separated Imani from me, and for the longest time, I sit in that position. After a while, there was a bit of shuffle on the other side. Are you there? Yes. You shouldn't have come. I leaned closer and put my ear against the door so I could hear his burly, above whisper voice. He sounded like himself, calm and rational. Come on out, Amani. No. Why not? You shouldn't have come, he insisted. I'm here now. Open the door and let, let's talk. No. Just open the door and we don't have to talk. No. Tell me what's troubling you, sweetheart. I could be myself with Dahlia Gunn. I could be generous and kind and let him open up. I know him better than anyone. I know. Amani repeated the mantra that was getting tiresome. I know too, offered earnestly. And I'd heard him chuckle and that made me hopeful. So I added, and I will tell you. There was no response. Amani? Nothing. Amani! I pulled myself up. And knocked hard on the door. Stop it! Stop it now! You're scaring me! I cried out, and despite myself, I could feel tears rolling down my cheeks, and I sobbed in frustration. Still nothing, so I waited patiently, like a mother would, like a sister might, like a lover could. I sat down again, leaning against the door, thinking that he might be doing the same on the other side of this thin wooden barrier. I thought i heard him sob too, so I started to cry again, as quietly as I could, but this time for him and with him. Minutes passed and my legs felt numb, so I stretched them in front of me and banged my head on the door in frustration. You shouldn't have come. Please leave. Open the door and let me see you and I will leave. I need to make sure. I just wanted to see his face and his eyes. I told myself, I could tell, I could be comforted if I could only get the door open and could comfort him in return. Please, Amani. I know. If you ever love me, you will open the door this very moment. I didn't want my anger and frustration to get hold of me, but couldn't help it. I was about to say something else to take back the love requirement when I heard the door unlock. I stood up quickly and fixed my dress. The door opened excruciatingly slow as if the act of unlocking it had exhausted Amani. He was sitting on the floor like I was, but not against the door as I hoped, I lay against the wall and away from me. He looked up and I could tell that he feared my presence. Amani's large brown eyes had sunken so deep in the socket that looked like small black rocks at the bottom of an abyss. Amani, I exclaimed in shock but found enough courage to reach down and pull him up to his feet. He stood up effortlessly and allowed me to hold his hand without protest. His hand felt warm and dry in mine and gently let him out of the room. We should go home now before it's too late, he warned me. I will, sweetheart, but let me clean you up bed and make you something to eat. I commanded and it seemed to work as he nodded and followed me to the bathroom. I cleaned his face with a small towel and walked him to the kitchen and made him sit at a table, all without saying a single word. I made a fresh pot of coffee and put a muffin in front of him and took one for myself from a perfect row of perfectly sized orange muffins. Amani stared at his food but didn't move. I took mine and practically put the whole thing in my mouth. He stared at me and gave a tiny smile. I went to the refrigerator and poured some cold milk and drank it heartily, while he watched me every move. It felt good to eat, voraciously. For some reason, it gave me a sense of power. I walked over to Amani and cut his muffin into little pieces and put one in his mouth. He accepted it like a little bird, and I chewed softly. I gave him a second piece, then another. Then I poured some coffee, and we drank and ate one more muffin each. And we drank another cup again, in all in silence. It seems the quiet and the food and the coffee had made him call and i thought all was well i was successful but dahlia had failed of course i was wrong i crawled under a table and sat next to amani who seemed to be in the trance i took his hand into mine and rubbed it gently and then laced my fingers into his like we used to do so long ago that made the table his new sanctuary After a few minutes of my relentless questioning, when i had enough of silence and coffee and muffins, I wanted him to open up, and he insisted I had to leave. And when we reached an impasse, he stood up slowly, and then in a serious fashion, edged himself under the table and wouldn't come out. I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to say. So I sat there where I was, and he sat under the table. Neither of us spoke for a long time, repeating a cycle of brooding silence, followed by relentless appeals from each of us. Then he started his litany of names and places without warning. After a few seconds, when I realized that he was not going to stop, I started carefully writing down his list on a yellow legal pad that was already on the table. After more than two hours, he stopped. His last word was Joseph, his fifth repetition of the name. I took off my glasses and rubbed the bridge of my nose and waited. I waited for you more more. I think that he might go on again, but nothing happened, so I brought him a glass of water and made him drink it before crawling under the table with him. We played in silent game for a few more minutes, but then I couldn't take it anymore. Let me help you, darling, I offered as we both stared straight ahead. What do these names and places mean? Just tell me. I squeezed his hand, trying to give him some comfort. He looked over and stared at me and leaned closer as if to kiss me, and my heart stopped breathing for a moment, but then started again in disappointment as he withdrew back to his shell. He was still looking at me, but I felt like he was looking through me as though I had become transparent. I know, Imani declared again. What is it you know, sweetheart? I know. I know. But I can't tell you. Amani cried out with a pained voice and could see his eyes well up with tears. You can trust me. You know that, don't you? Yes, but... No, sweetheart. Just trust me. You shouldn't have told me. Tell you what? He continued staring at me and beyond me at the same time. I was sure what he meant. You should have told me about your hysterectomy. What? Who told you? I burst into tears, even though this had happened decades ago and was over it. At least I thought I was over it. I would kept it from him because more than one doctor had told me that I could never bring a child to full term and any future pregnancies would bring more compl- complications and the best solution was hysterectomy. He wanted children when we were together and perhaps I should have discussed it with him. By the time our relationship had become complicated and most likely though I couldn't be sure, now purposely on decline, possibly because of the miscarriages. When I got pregnant the third time, I was over the moon but I kept the pregnancy to myself. I wanted to be cautious. I wanted to wait just to make sure before announcing it to Amani or anyone else. The first three months went smoothly, on each passing day I became more and more confident. And I decided I tell Amani at the end of the 13th week upon his return from the long business trip. I'd planned the day well in advance, wanting to make it memorable. It was. I bought little bunny socks, one with a pink bunny, and the other with blue one. I put them on the center of a table, hoping he would see them when he returned. But a few days later, before it, there was spotting, and then pain, and then by Friday at one thirty, the whole thing ended. I should have called him when I was in the hospital, but it seems every moment that things got worse, the doctor told me that I would be fine, and they kept telling me that until it was not fine. And by then, I was no longer pregnant. There was no reason to tell him anything. When when I went home that Friday night, tired and frustrated, Amani greeted me with such joy and love, holding the little socks in his hands that all I could do was burst into tears and melt on on our front landing. He cried with me and loved me and cared for me and promised me the next pregnancy would be fine. But when the doctors told me that the hysterectomy was the only option, I couldn't bring myself to tell him so I slowly drove him away. When I had the procedure, he would not know about it and the reason for me to end our relationship. It all made sense at the time and it would make no sense now. Perhaps it never made sense, but it's too late now as I'm sitting under a table with a man that is no longer mine. I would have loved you no matter what, Amani said after allowing me to cry for a long time. I was thinking at least this revelation no matter how he found out has allowed Amani a sense of sanity and made me happy that some past tragedy might bring him back. I should have told you. Yes. How did you learn about it? I just know, said Amani. As if the words invoked the curse, he became silent and distant again. Not again. Just tell me, please. If you love me, if you ever loved me, you would tell me. I tried the love angle, hoping it would work for the second time. Looked back at me again and this time he focused on me as if I had become less opaque. And he shook his head and I could see the pain in his eyes. You wouldn't ask if you knew. I'm scared, money, Just tell me. Be more scared if I tell you. Tell me something. Should go home. Should leave and never come back. If you love me, you would leave now. I can't do that. You know I can't. He kissed me lightly, and I felt his chapped lips and his warm breath. I knew I loved him and would do anything for him. Wouldn't you step in front of a bullet for your child, for your spouse, for the person you love the most? Wouldn't you consider your own life as trivial compared to his? I would. But what if your action, the armor you provide to stop the bullet, doesn't protect him? Do you still take the conscious decision and step in front of him, knowing that nothing could save him? That I cannot answer because at the time this question never came up. How could anything you say or do hurt me? It can never hurt me, no matter what you say. You know that, don't you? You would tell me if you love me. No, it's poison and I can't infect you like I've been infected. You have nothing. You are not being serious. God damn it, Amani. Tell me or walk out of this house. Leave you alone and your so-called poison. Leave. Then leave for God's sake. That's what I want you to do. Please leave. Tell me. I've said enough. I need more. I shouted and then again, Tell me more. Please don't tempt me, he begged. Can't you see I'm losing control? It wants to infect you too. But then I didn't understand I thought I was strong. It was too late. I think he knew that already. And then after much longer, he leaned closer. And I could see through his eyes. and could smell his skin. and could hear his heart break. And knew he had made a decision. Imani kissed me again. And then put his lips against my ear and whispered. He spoke softly, but deliberately. And I listened intently, waiting for the secret that was destroying him. He spoke for a few minutes, not very long. And then he withdrew. I thought about what he had just said. I was about to laugh at the simplicity of it. and ridicule him for scaring us so much over so little when I noticed the change in him. He looked strong, and a sense of relief washed over him. The small black holes that had transformed into two bright brown eyes and his cheeks, sullen and dark one minute, then healthy and rosy the next. Amani? He reached over and kissed me. His lips were soft and tender and warm, and then, as he had done earlier, put his mouth against my ear, but this time he offered nothing but a simple sorrow. Please forgive me, sweetheart, he offered, and then withdrew and crawled out from under the table and walked out of the kitchen. I felt nothing, neither good nor bad, for a moment. Dahlia's remaining muffins sat in a row, all golden and beautiful, as the evening sun cast a long shadow across the kitchen. I could hear Amani upstairs, walking about, and I felt deep satisfaction. I sat down for a moment, but then I felt strong, urged to smoke, even though I'd never smoked in my life. I left the house without saying goodbye to Amani, drove by by the urge to buy a pack of cigarettes. I started the car and started backing out as Dahlia drove in. Are you okay, Jackie? Dahlia shouted through her open car window. Everything is fine, I replied. I wasn't sure if she heard me, but I didn't care. I drove away, not thinking about the money or what he had told me, as he told me nothing but focusing on smoking my first cigarette. I drove east as fast as I could until I reached the liquor store on the corner of Fillmore in California. As if it were expected, there was a vacant space right in front of the store. I walked in, compelled by the invisible force, and bought a pack of cigarettes, a lighter, and a bottle of water, and a giant candy bar, and a bottle of scotch, when the only thing I wanted was a cigarette. I went outside and sat in my car with the door open and lit one and inhaled the smoke deeply like an addict, like the poison paint in my lung. Then I was done. The urge was gone. I threw the rest of the pack in the garbage and drove to my office. I sat at my desk and started reading the synopsis of the first manuscript. It was prepared by one of the assistant editors. The book was an 800-page behemoth, so the synopsis for itself was about 50 pages long. It was a diatribe on the current state of the economy. It was a book designed for public consumption, despite its volume. There was nothing in it, and I thought the prosaic reading would be good enough in an eerie day. I started reading where I had left the day before, but I couldn't remember what I had read, so I went back to the beginning. I read a few pages where the words didn't sound familiar as if I were reading the manuscript for the first time. The words looked and felt different. It was talking about something simple, but it wasn't correct, it wasn't complete. I didn't know how I had missed it before, but there was now a huge piece of it missing, and not in a sense that someone had forgotten something. It was all there, and yet it wasn't complete, and I could tell clearly that it was missing but it wasn't mine to correct. It wasn't my job to fix it. But I couldn't dispel the nagging urge and I felt, took a red pen and started underlining the pieces that were wrong. But it occurred to me this was a synopsis meant to help with the cover design and not the actual book. So I went to the editor's room and took the giant manuscript to my cubicle. I started reading it entirely, but once again, it was not right. It was not complete. The author, without knowing it, had touched on some points, but she didn't have the whole picture. She was missing the right elements. I knew the author did not and could not have known that she had touched on those vital points because she referenced them in passing not as part of her main topic. I took out my red pane again and started underlying the portion that needed correction, elaboration, and emphasis. By the time I reached the end of the book, it was past midnight, had missed my date. I looked at my phone, and there were several calls from him. I ignored them, and looked at my markers across the book, a sea of red in every page, but only underlined what needed correction, and I had to actually correct them now. I took my black pen to start to write what needed to be said, but then Amani's voice echoed in my head, I remember what he had told me. I knew I couldn't say what needed to be said, at least not this way, not so crudely on the pages of the worthless book. My hands trembled above the page and I wanted to tell the author that I knew to be right and to be transformative but I couldn't and tried and tried again but the best I could do to inform the author to tell her that those pieces were missing was to write, I know but I can't tell you. I went home and slept soundly and woke up late and told myself that I wouldn't allow Amani's madness to govern my life. It was Saturday morning I had the whole weekend to myself. I listened to messages from my date starting from concerned ending with anger. And there were two calls from Dalia thanking me copiously for saving money, asking me to join them for dinner. There was nothing from Imani. I dressed and left the house and walked toward the metro station, not wanting to take the car downtown, but I stopped at the coffee shop for, to get a cup of coffee to go. As I was waiting in line, I heard a young couple arguing. They were both saying the same thing, but from different angles. Was the same topic as was in the manuscript but was not exactly the same they were even more on the boundaries but like the massive book the argument was just a shadow of what was real they went back and forth for a while and i wanted to tell them they were both wrong that i knew the truth and they should know and they were wrong but I held my tongue it wasn't my place i got my coffee and started to leave but they were still arguing it insisting more i pushed the door to get out but the same minute I couldn't control the urge and said, perhaps hollered, I know. The couple stopped and looked at me as if I were crazy, but knew I was right and they were wrong. They went back to the argument and I left the shop. I went to the BART station and a train arrived as I did. So I thought, how lucky, and stepped in, but luck no longer had a role in my life. I sat down and tried to clear my mind of the couple and the manuscript and most of all the money hoping that the process would clean my body and its poison, but was not to be. The more I tried to purge it, the more it grew inside me and grew fast. The man across from me was reading the chronicle and could see the headlines. This was a newspaper with tens of thousands of readers, and one would have thought they would know more. But they were even more oblivious than the couple in the coffee shop. How could this be? How could we be so ignorant of the truth that lay so plainly in front of us? That's wrong, I shouted at the man without wanting to, and he looked over at the paper and smiled, expecting another crazy person on the metro. I'd dressed up to go downtown. I'd made my hair and put on makeup. I looked fine, as my mother would say. I smelled of expensive perfume, so perhaps the smile was not to dismiss me, but to agree with me. One professional to another. I could clearly see and understand what was invisible only a day earlier. It was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, to be precise but it was as clueless as the headline. He took my comment as an invitation and started to shuffle as I tried to build the courage to engage me. It's wrong, I repeated without control, as if the urge to speak out like the urge to smoke a day earlier was taking over me. What's wrong, the man asked, and now feeling encouraged, he stood up. I was about to tell him. The words, the truth, nodded in my body. were being pushed by force as if being purged like a poison. At the same time my sane self knew the consequence of such deliverance. I was about to say how misguided the headline was, and had the answer the answer, but then I remembered the words whispered so delicately earlier, and could feel Amani's warm breath on my skin, and so instead of saying what I knew to be truth, I welled out I know. The man had deep well of empathy and took a step closer, asked without inviting smile, what is that you know, miss? He thought he was being supportive, but it was no game. It was not the price of humanity. I know, I repeated miserably. I know. I cried out before he could respond. I added, but I can't tell you. He smiled, a weak, dawning smile, and he sat down. I kept my mouth shot the rest of the ride and got off Montgomery Station on Market on Market Street. I left the station and told myself I would not let the day be ruined by headlines or arguments. I walked into the small boutique off Gary Street, and even though I couldn't really afford anything in the shop, I thought it would be buy something small anyway as a way of treating myself, something to make me feel good about life. I walked in, and the place was elegant, and the clothes were stylish, and the air smelled of something sweet and spicy, like Dahlia's cupcake. There were two young women in the counter, both tall and blonde and thin, and one of them, the one who was hoping to be a lawyer and not the one who was worried she might be pregnant, walked over and asked if she could assist me with my selection. I dismissed her and she went back to her colleague. I roamed the shop slowly, looking at each article carefully with newly in doubt eye. The woman at the counter board with my slow inspection started talking about their dates from the night before and the restaurants and the wine and the great sex they had. The talk without paying attention to me, playful talk between two young women. I heard them get excited about the men and their jobs and what they did and did not do. Although they didn't know it, they encroached on the same theme as the couple in the cafe. It wasn't the same topic. They were just being convivial. But what they said was not correct. It hinted at the fact but it missed the essential ingredients like eating cupcakes that looked like dahlias and smelled like dahlias was missing the essence of what made dahlias cupcake. Ladies, I said, would you like to slice something on? You're both wrong. Wrong about what, ma'am? I bit my lip hard, trying hard to control the urge, knowing that it would not end well. I know, I cried with a pain voice. I knew I was right, and if I know something essential, wouldn't you want to reveal it, even if it might poison the world? The young woman didn't know, and if they did, they probably didn't care. I'm sure they offered in unison. I know, I insisted. Of course, then tell us, replied the one that seems more reasonable, the future lawyer. I can't. I shouted my new mantra a few more times, and in the end, they asked me to leave, politely of course, and left with tears in my eyes, frustrated and humiliated. I went straight back to the station, my head down, and my ears blocked, and my mind focused on my feet as I took step after step toward the entrance, Then I sat down on a train, and stared blankly at the dark window as it jerked forward. There was silence, and it felt good to be away from all those falsities. The train stopped. A few people walked in. They were mostly tourists. A family huddled by the train door and started talking about the young museum they had visited earlier in the day. The father was telling about the history and the impact on the city. He had little information about the place, as most tourists do. He was just ignorant of the facts. He had most of it right anyway. and His teenage daughter, wanted to be helpful, searched the web on her phone and then gave it to her father. So. He could read the correct information. She was sweet, unlike most brooding teenagers. It felt good to be normal. But then the conversation turned and I could hear hints of what they were going with it. They were talking about the same thing and it was clear they were being misled, as if one could learn how a train engine worked but merely looking at a picture of a railroad. I felt bad for the daughter who had been so helpful and now she was being deceived. The father continued with confidence and the children listened intently. I knew they were all wrong, and they would always be wrong, and it finally became clear what Amani meant. He whispered his poison to me. The train stopped, and the conversation continued, and I shouted, you're all wrong. The father pulled his daughter closer. I know, I cried out. I knew what my knowledge meant, nothing unless I would whisper in each ear. I know, the word came out of my mouth, as quickly as it was followed, but I can't tell you. It didn't matter what they said behind my back, because the door slid open and I left and walked hurriedly toward my apartment. I felt exhausted and feverish and went straight to bed, but couldn't fall asleep no matter how much I tried. That was almost a month ago. I've sequestered myself in my apartment since the Saturday morning in October when I learned that I could never contain the effect of Amani's poison. I called in sick on Monday, and then on Tuesday, then on Wednesday, and then stopped calling, my generous boss waited until Friday, and then she called me and left a message wishing me to get well. She called again the second week and then showed up at my door in the third week, but then I let her in, though I managed to assure her that all was well. She came back today, insisting on coming inside the apartment. She expected to see a sick woman lying in bed, but looked healthy. And the apartment looked clean and organized, if not coverly overly dark. She looked around the living room and said, I'm so glad you're feeling better, Jackie. And then she pointed to the windows all covered with brown papers and the computer that was smashed and TV with those wires pulled out. What's going on, Jackie? I survive. I know I will survive. I can't watch TV or listen to the radio. I disconnected them all. No internet, no smartphone either. The landline works, so there's my daily ration of Chinese food delivered to my front door. You should see a doctor, Jackie. You're a nervous breakdown. You're depressed. She diagnosed me as well as any doctor might. Look at my immaculate apartment. If I'm depressed, then depression has been good for my apartment, I offered. But then, why not come back to work? Why are you living like a hermit? Because I'm strong. I don't understand. I'm strong enough to not let the venom destroy me. What venom? She asked. So I told her about Amani, about Dahlia's cupcakes, about his soft kisses. They told her that Amani was dead. He killed himself on the very Saturday. He poisoned me, and then free of the poison, committed suicide as if without it he had lost the will to live. Dahlia called me to inform me I had killed her husband. I then pick up the phone, so she left a message to add to the venom that her husband bestowed upon me. So what are you doing now? My darling boss asked. I'm surviving. Didn't you learn anything from your own story? There's no venom. Your friend was depressed, and now you are. He took his own life, and you loved him, so you're grieving. You are grieving, sweetheart, and that's okay. It's normal to get sick, but you need to see a doctor. No one can cure me. How do you know? Because I know. Weren't you listening to me? I know. What is it you know, Jackie? Tell me. What's the secret, sweetheart? That's made you crazy. You really want to know? I'm dying to know. Then lean closer and let me tell you more. The end. Thank you so much for listening to this story. My name is Mahiro Muzagar and thank you again. That was Dr. Mahira Musagar, the provost and senior vice president at the University of New Orleans, as well as a writer of fiction. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a new community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in every Saturday at 3 p.m. as well as Mondays at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.